0: Hello, NK News podcast listeners. Today we present a special crossover podcast produced with and recorded by the Career Society, which is a New York-based organization dedicated solely to the promotion of greater awareness, understanding, and cooperation between the people of the United States and Korea. It has existed in one form or another since 1957 and produces an excellent podcast series that I myself listen to regularly. On the visit to New York City by NK News' CEO, Chad O'Carroll, and I, the podcast host, we were kindly hosted by the Career Society to talk about covering North Korea, together with Korean-American freelance journalist Hana Bae. The following podcast episode is the recording of that discussion, kindly shared with NK News by the Korea Society for simultaneous release by both of our podcast streams. Visit www.koreasociety.org to find out more.
1: Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh- Thanks for joining us here at the Korea Society. I'm Tom Byrne, president of the society, and uh, we are all very pleased to welcome you uh, to this program titled Covering North Korea. Uh, North Korea's closed economy and its opacity uh, presents significant obstacles to anyone trying to work in this country. We are fortunate today to be joined by three journalists who are not deterred by that uh, and uh, who share a passion for... Uh, Korean Peninsula-related news, and who bring different skills and perspectives uh, to the table. Chad O'Carroll, to my left, immediate left here, is the chief executive officer and founder of Korea Risk Group, which operates NK News and NK Pro. Jacob Zwetslut, uh, sitting by Jonathan over there, um, is the host of NK News Podcast, which features interviews with experts and journalists about North Korea. Hannah Bae uh, is a freelance journalist and the outgoing Asia-American Journalist Association New York president. She Very was outgoing. also recently a Kim Koo fellow here at the Korea Society. Um, moderating the event uh, this afternoon will be our own Jonathan Corrado, who is the Korea Society's uh, policy director. He also does some writing on North Korea and was uh, formerly a translator for the news site daily NK. Mm. At 1 p.m. today, uh, after this session, uh, we have, uh, we'd have we like to invite uh, those who have the time and interest to another discussion on North, the North Korean economy, uh, where we'll be contrasting North Korea with Cuba with a former colleague of mine, um, Jaime Rouge from Moody's, and also uh, we'll be uh, uh, joined by Peter Ward, who's become probably one of the most experts anywhere on North Korea's uh, regulatory and legal reforms. Next Friday on February 7th, uh, the University of Connecticut history professor Alexis Dudden will discuss Korea Japan relations with senior editor, uh, senior excuse me Senior Director Stephen Norper. Uh, to sign up for that, please visit KoreaSociety.org. Before I turn to Jonathan, I'd like to invite you all um, uh, to please help us in welcoming the panelists with a round of applause.
2: Thank you very much, Tom. Um, hi, I'm Jonathan Corrado. I'm the policy director here at the Society and I'll be moderating today's discussion. Uh, we're lucky to be joined today, not only by notable journalists in our stage, but also here in our audience. Uh, we also have a visiting class from St. Anne's High School. Thank you very much for coming in. We'd love to incorporate student groups to all of our programming, so thank you for joining us. Um, the format of today's discussion is We'll have a conversation here on stage and then we'll turn to you for the audience Q&A. So I invite you to start gestating now what kinds of questions you'll have for the panelists when we're ready for that. As we all know, North Korean news tends to move really fast but it's also steeped in history and it's prone to cycles. Lack of access is a perennial problem. If the crucial ingredient of a compelling news story is a strong and reliable network of sources then it is easy to see how reporting on North Korea with its impenetrable borders and digital firewall is a frustrating enterprise for even the most determined journalist. On our stage today are three journalists who are so determined to overcome those types of barriers. For the past few years, the Korea Society has tried to help with capacity building and programming. We've hosted two rounds of visiting global journalists sponsored by the US State Department and the Foreign Press Center helping to train them on peninsula issues. Our Kim Koo Professional Series trains media professionals along with corporate and United Nations uh, officials to sit down with thought leaders on Korea and Northeast Asia. Hannah is one such fellow. Last year we had Wong Mei Yi, an amazing uh, photographer from Pyongyang uh, Bureau of AP News. And we also had Jean Lee, a journalist who was instrumental in. In setting up that bureau in Pyongyang, North Korea. We are all familiar with the parable of the blind men who encounter an elephant for the first time. One touches the elephant's leg and he says it's a tree trunk. Another touches the elephant's side and says it's a wall. A last touches the tusk and determines well this is a spear. They are all right and yet they are all wrong. Only by critically analyzing the sum of these findings, is it possible to see the truth? For all of us in this room who try to understand the realities of North Korea, this will no doubt sound familiar. So I wanted to start by asking you all, what are some of the common obstacles to collecting and analyzing news in North Korea? And what are some of the tricks that you've developed over the course of your career to try to get around those? Chad, I wonder if you could start us off.
3: Um, one of the things that we do when we get uh, leads uh, information is try and validate, verify it through as many different means as possible, especially with if we can get primary source stuff. Um, and believe it or not, there is quite a lot of information out there. North Korean state TV, there, it's like a blue ocean of, of primary source material. And oftentimes in the background of North Korean TV, you can see things, cars, for example, luxury Maybach Mercedes that shouldn't be there um, and that can give you a nice lead but we can also then pair that with things like satellite imagery analysis talking to sources who are regularly going to North Korea or who live there for professional reasons um, checking websites like Flickr uh, there's a lot of North Korea photos get uploaded there so there's there's just like a very wide range of source material out there if you know where to look for and we just try and collect all of that and synthesize it as as accurately as possible it's yeah sometimes we make mistakes it's not you know it's quite an error-prone process but I'm proud to say that you know we haven't made any big mistakes and um, yeah
2: thanks yeah Hannah any thoughts on that
4: Well, I think that the field of scholarship around North Korea has grown so much since I first moved to Korea in 2007. I lived there from 2007 to 2013. And at the time, I feel like there were, you know, a couple big names among experts that news outlets would return to again and again. But now the field is diversifying so much more. I'm particularly excited to see more of an investment in bringing in Korean voices, as well as the voices of women. Um, There is this amazing um, Google spreadsheet that's online of um, women experts on Korea and Japan that um, I believe was started by Kim Gamel from the Stars and Stripes. And I feel like by looking outside of the, the usual suspects in terms of who you can interview, um, we're getting so much richer stories now.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that it makes particular sense because some of the most exciting developments in North Korea right now have to do with gender roles. The women are the engines of the marketplaces. The men are off in their factory jobs and the women if you watch videos that are smuggled out of these North Korean markets, the people working these stalls, they're all women. (laughs) So they are the breadwinners for a lot of North Korean families. So it makes sense to also have journalists that understand that perspective as well.
4: Definitely. I feel um, just from my own personal networking, um, meeting Yi um Hyunseo Lee, she's a defector who has spoken very widely, especially in a famous TED talk, about her own experience of um, leaving North Korea and finding her way to South Korea. And um, I feel like by bringing in these different perspectives, It's it's so important to get a humanizing look at what's actually happening in North Korea. What has bothered me, um, in terms of my own study of journalism around North Korea, is when North Korea is used as a punchline or when um, sensationalist, unconfirmed stories are put out there. And I think that um, you know NK News's dedication to, to verification, to bringing in voices like the, the Ask a North Korean series, I feel like that really is bringing in uh, a, a, a more truthful side of coverage around North Korea.
2: Thanks. Jacko, any thoughts?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's not just um, difficult to get um, sources and voices out of North Korea. It's also... Um, on the podcast, from my experience, it's difficult to get people from the American and South Korean government sides too, right? So I, we're, uh, we put out a, a podcast every Tuesday uh, in which I interview somebody with an area of expertise or, or experience or knowledge about North Korea. And I have to say that most of my requests... Um, are either ghosted or are rejected. So, for example, I've uh, uh, on the way to the United States for this particular trip. I sent in requests to um, Stephen Began, Mike Pompeo, John Bolton. I, I think he's a bit busy this week, <laughs> uh, but I did want to get him on the show uh, to talk about you know uh, his observations and experiences in the uh, in the Trump administration. Um, and, and it, that can be quite a challenge. Also, I've been, I send monthly requests to the South Korean Foreign Minister, Kang Jong hwa to come on the uh, podcast, and I typically get a copy-pasted answer that she's too busy uh, this week and maybe forever. So, But, you know, we keep plugging away because eventually I do get uh, some minds changed uh, and they do come on, and, but that is always the, the big obstacle, is getting someone to come and talk on the record uh, about, about North Korea. Thanks. Right. Um, It's very
2: evident that if one were to do uh, an ethnography of North Korea watchers that it it would look like a very unique community. It it attracts all different sorts. Um, So I wanted to ask you all about your personal experience. How did you get attracted to this field in the first place and what excites you about it we, we just talked about some of the problems and some of the tough aspects of it but I, I want to get to what what lured you in first of all and then what's kept you interested about this beat
3: uh, well I went to North Korea in 2009 as a tourist and I found it really fascinating and it made me go back two more times and uh, I thought you know a lot of people knock tourism uh, they think that it's just a sort of preordained trail that you go on and you just, you know, exposed with propaganda the whole time. But there's a surprising amount you can learn, and you can travel a lot more uh, throughout North Korea than you can on any official delegation for a journalist. Normally, journalists just go to Pyongyang. So tourism was what really drew me in. And I think it also opened my eyes to where you could collect information conceivably from foreigners who are, are going into North Korea. Um what excites me, uh, scoops where <laughs> you know, if we can get some nice exclusive news, that's always a good feeling. We we had a story last week. We um found out that the North Korean foreign minister had been uh sacked and replaced with uh, a gentleman called Risan Guan and uh it well I've just had a baby and uh, it was three AM and I couldn't sleep, and some sources were texting me. And from I actually wrote the story from bed, <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> and pressed publish. And that that's a quite an exciting feeling because you you don't know if you're a hundred percent right. You've got four four sources lined up that say something, and then questions start going through your mind like, are the sources manipulating me? Is this to you know embarrass us? But just gambled and it turned out it was right, and so that was that was. Definitely an exciting feeling. For sure. And uh, you kind of glazed over this, but you just had a baby. Oh, yes, yes. Congratulations. That's exciting.
4: (laughs) In the time that I was living in South Korea, I feel like so much changed in terms of our access to North Korea and just political events in North Korea. So from 2007 to 2013, of course, we see the collapse of the six-party talks. We see the uh, sinking of the Chonan, the opening of the AP's news bureau in Pyongyang, um, the death of, of Kim Jong-il. Um, and so... I felt like it was a very exciting time to be on the ground in South Korea. And now I feel like I am less of a direct participant in the journalism that is produced about North Korea, but still very much a spectator and somebody who follows this field with much interest. Um, I would say that in my experience with um, the Kim Koo Fellowship, it was such a great opportunity to talk to experts whom I've seen you know, as words on a page right across the table from me And I think that especially coming off a couple of years where there was a lot of optimism about North-South relations, I felt like this real sense of being jaded after seeing so many uh, back and forth forces at play. And um, so to be able to have these frank discussions with experts like Victor Cha, it was it was incredible.
0: Thanks. I'd also, I would echo that that uh, uh, really excites me. Uh, when Chad asked me two years ago to, uh, to start doing a podcast for NK News, I thought, here's my chance to actually meet some of these people who, as you say, were... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Until then, either just words on a page or were voices on the Career Society podcast, which I listen to uh, (laughs) weekly. Uh, So that's what's really fun is to be able to meet these folks who are either currently serving in some official capacity or or have had that experience in the past. uh, And to really get get down, you know, in the the details, in the weeds, uh, so to speak, with them. Uh, but how it all started for me, um, I first went to uh, to South Korea in 1996 with the uh, the South Korean government's EPIC program, right? English program in Korea. So I was an EPIC teacher, working at a middle school up in Paju, which is the provi- not the pro- the county in Gyeonggi Province that borders uh, North Korea. So very close to Munsan, very close to Panmunjom, and uh, I was uh, lucky enough uh, to be able to catch North Korean television on my TV at home wow. just by accident because I was living in a kind of a, a dip, I suppose, where the, the South Korean uh, military's jamming signal did not effectively jam the North Korean. So you could see the two, you could see the North Korean TV and the South Korean jamming signal test pattern uh, simultaneously on the, uh, on the TV screen. So it wasn't, wasn't very good for the eyes, but it was fascinating to watch it. And at the same time, I happened to be reading uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm. And I thought, wow, here it is. This is, uh, you know, it's, it's happening right before me. And uh, I would watch these. Um, at that stage, my Korean wasn't very good. It was still learning. And I was watching, um, you know, Kim Jong-il going out there doing the on the, on the ground inspections, or on the spot inspections, and uh, milita- male military choirs singing these songs of praise and the the highly excitable and emotional newscaster doing the, uh, the newsreads. And every day from from 5 to 11 it was on and I would you know I'd get bored after a few minutes so I'd start to skip to other channels off to AFKN to watch a bit of American TV and then after a while I'd go yeah, let's see what the North Koreans are doing and I'd go back again <laughs> uh, and that started this um this lifelong fascination with with North Korean propaganda that you know the, at that stage the two Koreas were still very much active in trying to persuade citizens of the other half we're the better Korea come on over you know come and, and cross the border. Uh, and so the North Koreans would send leaflets, and uh, at certain schools near the, the DMZ, you could hear uh, North Korean music wafting over the, the rice fields. Uh, and so from that moment, I knew uh, this is uh, something very interesting, and I was hooked. Fellow teacher, I was also in. I was in Gwangju for ah. a year. Yeah. Also epic. No. Okay. Just at a hagwon.
2: I don't have the prestige of the epic program. <laughs> it's
0: all um, a question of luck.
2: Yeah. I feel like when we're looking at propaganda, it's almost like, if you remember that scene from The Matrix, when they're looking at these streams of digital code going down the screen and they say, well, yeah, I I don't even see the code anymore. I see what it means. And that's how I feel about North Korean propaganda, whether it's press statements, whether it's television, there are certain motifs that come and repeat themselves. And then there's the deeper meaning embedded in those. And it takes a while to to be able to sort out the noise from the signal. So I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit. How, what are some tips? How have you sort of been able to navigate that environment? Um, because it's a tough one, but it's also a, a really rich uh, source of material as well.
3: Yeah, we, <coughs> we've we um, built a system on our website called KCNA Watch, which basically um, is a bunch of scripts which are like, automatically going to all of the main North Korean propaganda websites. And then they do what Google actually does and co- copies it into a database and makes it searchable. So with one, when we have all that stuff coming into our database, we can code systems to allow you to configure alerts, for example, so that you can get an email if certain keywords come up in state media. Uh, we're also collecting all the TV, so we record that every day and host it. Um, and. Uh, That, that from a technical perspective, helps. But then you also need people to be able to analyze that and make the most of it. And we have a really excellent uh, analyst called Min Young Lee, who just joined us uh, last year, who has almost 20 years experience analyzing state media from North Korea. And someone like that on the team really helps to to understand. Because there are a lot of experts, you're right. but there are a lot of experts that are frankly generalists and don't have the understanding to really scrutinize those state media statements and so having someone with like practical experience like twenty years as she does versus uh you know a scholar focused on asia writ large it's a it's a big difference and I still see a lot of um journalists reaching out to specialists that are not not necessarily the best fit for certain stories um Anyway, yeah, that's just yeah. And
2: Rachel is uh, Rachel Minyoung Lee is fantastic. I can't tell you how many times uh, over the past year I thought this here's a story, and I would be like, I'd pitch it, and be like, maybe this is maybe this is an angle, and uh, she's already written that story. So she, she's really <laughs> on top of things. Yeah,
4: yeah. It's really interesting to see this rise in interest in um, like the visual propaganda from North Korea, especially um, from an aesthetic perspective, like. I was walking down the street in Brooklyn the other day and happened to see a man wearing uh, an Aero Koryo shirt. And I was just like, where is this from? That might yeah, be. that's <laughs> what it turns out. Yeah. That's right. what friends told me. It at
0: nkshop.org. <laughs> it's closed down now. Oh, it's closed down. That's <laughs> sorry.
4: <laughs> but yes, it's been really fascinating to see. And then, you know, you see, uh, for, for example, in Parasite the The maid character um, does the impression of a North Korean newscaster. And oh, yeah. you know, if you aren't familiar with these touchstones of of North Korean representation, uh, you don't get it, you know right. um, but it's it's really cool to see it kind of getting out there in the culture. Um, I don't personally plan on buying a North Korean propaganda poster like I think when you are traveling in North Korea you have to be really careful right like not trying to steal banners for example um and breach sanctions oh yes that too (laughs) um but yeah it's it's great that you have experts who are able to take such a detail-oriented look at Mm -hmm. you know the media that's coming out of north korea
3: one interesting thing though that's happening um is north korean state tv which uh we are watching daily and analyzing they've started actually i think they realized that people like us are using it as a as a sort of lens into some things because stage managing tv is a lot harder than text right there's so much going on in the background outside of the cameraman's control or the camera woman's control and um they've started blurring the background so they'll be doing an interview and they'll like all these signs would be blurred but the people who are doing the blurring they don't do it very um a good job of it so sometimes it's blurred other shots it won't be sometimes it's really mundane stuff like um there was something about a uh, tree nursery and they had the stuff on the back, blurred. It it's very odd. But that, as, as they get better at that and as it becomes more common, it means that we're going to find less uh, leads from the state TV stuff, which in turn will mean less information getting out. So that's a negative I...
2: I remember seeing uh, just one quick point about Parasite. I wonder how many uh, American audience members recognize that performance as uh, the the lady in pink that we see so frequently on on uh, what's she on KCNA. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but I'm sure that South Korean audience has caught that reference.
2: In, in terms of,
0: um, uh, if I can say a quick thing about, Portland. yeah, please. So I, uh, uh, when I went to uh, North Korea on my first trip to Pyongyang in 2010, um, I went to the uh, everyone's taken to the Kim Il Sung. Uh, Square foreign bookshop. It's one of the major stops on the uh, on, on the itinerary. And I wanted to get something interesting to read in Korean, but I find that looking at uh, North Korean novels or North Korean books in Korean, it's very hard on the eyes. You know, South Korean texts, um, there's a lot of uh, spacing between the lines and wide margins, so it's easy to read. But North Koreans, they're conserving paper, margins are small, text is um, very close together, and the paper's very thin, so you'll see the, pa- the text from the page behind, you know. And so I said, I don't want that, I want comic books. So I, I asked the, uh, the lady at the, at the Il Song Square Bookshop, do you have any comic books that show the true evil nature of the American imperialist bastards. And, uh, and she, she loved that. She said, oh, yeah, she went to the back and came with these, these three comic books. And that's how my uh, fascination with the North Korean comic books began. I thought, oh, huh. They really make these comics that are, show some, some of them show clear uh, Japanese influence and some of them show clear American influence. So I ended up doing a, a master's thesis about North Korean wow. comics as a, a propaganda vehicle for... Um, uh, for in you know giving the the youth um, the next generation giving them the worldview of, uh, right. of you know who's good and who's bad in the world right. uh, and that, that was that's a lot of fun because it's it's different from you know the, the other forms of propaganda that we're used to in uh, either in posters or on TV or in newspapers you know it's right. a bit more it's designed to also be entertaining as well as conveying a message so um, if anyone out there works for a publisher and would like to have some uh, English translations of North Korean comic books. Uh, I have a few that are uh, uh, awaiting publications. So. Good pitch. We'll
2: see if we get any response afterwards. Um, please send that to me. That sounds really interesting. One metric that I found really helpful is this notion by B.R. Myers about inner track versus outer track propaganda. One really important thing that we need to keep in mind is who's the audience for this? So not all propaganda is created equally and not all propaganda is created with the purpose of aiming at the outside audience. Some of it isn't intended. Most of it is made by the propaganda and agitation department. Some of it aimed specifically at, at a domestic audience, and that's the stuff that goes into the weekly criticism sessions, etc. cetera. Uh, and then other content is created with a global audience in mind. So that's one really difficult element that only comes with 20 years of experience,
0: as you noted before, to be able to parse that out. Absolutely. That uh, There's a, a small book... Uh, in North Korea published in, uh, in red with a title um, uh, The Ten Principles of Establishing a Monolithic Leadership Ideology and this is uh, basically the Ten Commandments for every North Korean every North Korean has it memorized every North Korean weighs up their own life to those ten points in the weekly self-criticism sessions and when I went there last year uh, I saw a new edition of this book 2019 so I said oh can I buy this and I was absolutely told by every bookshop every guide this is not available for foreigners Hmm. Uh, And so it was a a clear example of this inner track, um, which is, you know, it's the most important uh, document for North Korean uh, living, uh, much more important than, say, the Constitution or laws or even the Rodong Shimon. And yet, you know, uh, they don't show it to us. We don't see any quotes from it. It's not on the posters. You can't buy it in the bookshops. It's only available because uh, some intrepid people have smuggled out copies. and, And that's why we have the full text of it on the Internet we got the chance
2: to see Young Ho, the diplomat who was uh, formerly posted in London and escaped with his family. And he said, make sure you monitor these weekly video criticism sessions. They, he called them Saturday videos because they're naming and shaming particular people for different infractions. So the video that he showed us was people wearing uh, Western style clothes with English lettering on them. And they would say, here's this person, their name is this, they're from this region and this is how old they are. But by watching that, you see they are shifting priorities. What's important to them in terms of cracking down or backing off, because that's a very gray area. So watching these things on a regular basis helps us to know what, where are the priorities at any given moment.
4: Yeah, Jonathan, I, I thought it was really interesting to see on NK News the piece that you wrote about the tech, the, how technology is changing North Koreans' access to media, too. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little more about your piece.
2: Well, geez, I'm blushing <laughs> Yeah, so this is really interesting. So there's been this, uh, this tug of war almost between the government and the population for access because, uh, of course, uh, North Koreans are hungry for, for outside content, mostly for entertainment. So when Seoul National University does this annual poll of defectors and asks, what's the content that you most like to see? Well, what would your guess be? Maybe you'd guess uh, they're interested in news about North Korea, maybe about the outside world. They're most interested in news about South Korea. They're secondly most interested in uh, entertainment about South Korea. But these priorities don't match the availability. Um, The thing that they're most likely likely to view is is Chinese content, and that's that's a question of availability, right? But um, new technologies have, on the one hand,
0: an SD card is much easier to hide than a DVD, a DVD player. And can be removed uh from the computer even if the state security people turn off the electricity to the whole apartment building whereas back in the 1980s if you had a vhs that you're watching they turn off the electricity you can't get that thing out fast enough before there's someone at your door to inspect your vhs plan right right so now with things like uh they're using
2: network signal finders to be able to german produced to be able to Locate people using radio uh, using cell phones near the border because they are using the Chinese networks to make international calls So they shut down the the North Korean network So therefore anyone still using a cell phone after they shut down the North Korean network is using the Chinese network And they use these uh, radio signal finders to to go and track them down Yeah, Um, I wanted to talk about stories because that's what journalists are principally, right? They're they're storytellers So I wanted to ask you um, what stories over the past year have been most enduring for you and why? And what do these personal stories uh, coming from North Korea tell us about changes in North Korean society at large? Um, <clears throat> the story I
3: found most interesting was, uh, which some of you may, may be familiar with, um, we got a, a tip in September last year that um, pre- the North Koreans were building a hotel for Donald Trump in Pyongyang, And uh, we should look out for this because it's a sign that Trump may be coming to Pyongyang. It sounded far-fetched, but I started asking people in Pyongyang, like, have you seen construction? And um, we started getting, like, uh, information about new security processes that the North Koreans were installing. So, for example, we heard that they were putting window bars up on uh, people's apartments to stop them looking outside the windows. And... We also heard that photos were banned from the top of the juche tower we heard that helicopter flights over pyongyang were suspended for tourists um all of these things basically adding up to uh show that there's a a real sort of paranoia that's grown in north korea in the last year In, in fact since the hanoi summit and these window bars when you see photos of them i was able to get some from both outside and inside they're They're made of concrete. They're like large concrete slats that would cover these windows and make your room very dark, feel like a prison. And they all face a certain direction. It seems to be to prevent people from uh, either using acoustic laser sounding uh, listening devices or potentially using weapons to target areas of the Korean Workers' Party headquarters. And for me it was just so incredible because some of the apartments in Pyongyang that have been given to the to elites for example Changchun street which was built 100 year anniversary of Kim Il Sung's birth to be gifted one of those and then have the state security bureau install these window slats it's going to make the house value go down and it potentially can also foster some uh un, you know anger and uh frustration from residents who's apartments are now being turned into to prison cells effectively so it, it was quite mind-blowing that 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 happened so a lead that brought
2: you down a totally unexpected direction
3: yeah but was it was very it fruitful did. and um just the other thing i wanted to mention um is because of the growth of sanctions in the last uh especially two three years um i'm not i'm not very comfortable about this but we often find ourselves writing stories about very very granular sanctions breaches um i i i i investigated one last year about uh singaporean soft drinks that were going to north korea and they breach very harsh singaporean uh, trade ban and they contain metal which is on a, a list of commodities that north korea shouldn't be able to import and i thought you know this it, it made me feel uncomfortable writing it because i'm thinking that, the people that consume these drinks are just common North Korean people. And does it, you know, is it really that bad? But sanctions are at a point now where um, I think we're going to see more of this. If if North Korea starts doing ICBMs and nuclear tests again, we're going to see even more granular sanctions being implemented. And that that's going to mean a lot more um, kind of silly stories that clearly won't help facilitate denuclearization. But... Uh, We actually have strong demand from government readers for those kinds of stories.
4: Yeah, I think that, you know, since 2010 or so, there's been this kind of cumulative effect of more stories coming out of North Korea. Like the first book that really blew my mind in terms of a storytelling perspective about North Korea was Barbara Demick's Nothing to Envy. Sure. Um, And then last year we had Anna Fifield's new book come out and she has produced excellent journalism from northeast asia for such a long time now Um, and then we have victoria kim for the la times like i think she just published a piece today about um north koreans in south korea who are teaching cooking classes and um you know being able to to convey aspects of their culture through the food that they cook and sharing um aspects of life like you know more of a a dependency on tofu example, for example, as a protein. Um, so it's it's really exciting to see. And, you know, even from a fictional perspective, um, Chris Lee wrote her fantastic uh, novel, How I Became a North Korean in 2016. So we see a lot coming out from, um, you know, both from the fictional and the non-fictional perspectives, um, which I think has started to to really flesh out kind of what North Koreans are like and and what are their motivations um, right. and, and what implications does that have for their politics.
2: And getting to directly, I mean, through fiction, but also through food, getting mm-hmm. to experience uh, what life is like for them is, is a very rich kind of experience. I remember trying uh, North Korean sundae. I, I, re- I really love blood sausage. Sundae is like my favorite Korean food. And North Korea's variety is especially delicious. Um, you'll find some Pyongyang naimyeon, uh on the wall over there as part of Kong Yik-chun's uh, artistic gallery exhibition about unification. So a, a really strong symbol.
4: Yeah. I think um, Michelle Yehe Lee at The Washington Post wrote a nice personal piece about the significance of Pyongyang Nengmyon in her own family after seeing the, I think, 2016 inter-Korean summit. So I think bringing in these personal perspectives is also really great. And um, I had a friend who grew up in the border areas um, who's a journalist who talked about, as a child finding these propaganda leaflets and yeah. how, if you turn them into the local police station, she would get like erasers and pencils and things. <laughs> and, um, I can't wait for more of these kinds of stories to come out to, to show that like the, the detailed nuances of life on both sides of the border.
0: Yeah. And in, in doing the podcast, uh, because I, I, have such a, a diversity of people who i interview some of them are uh, analysts and some of you know government people but some of my favorite podcasts have been talking to people who have had a uh, a direct narrative to share for example one of the early ones i did was with uh, former Australian diplomat Adrian Buzo talking about his experience of opening up the, Australian, the very, very short-lived Australian embassy in Pyongyang back in the 1970s mm. uh, and then having just 24 hours to leave Pyongyang when the North Koreans announced, "We don't need your embassy anymore. You know, that was a, a great story. Or uh, Monique Macias, uh, the daughter of the former uh, president of Equatorial Guinea, who uh, wrote a book in uh, Korean, um, You know, I'm Monique from, uh, from Pyongyang, about her experience growing up from the ages of nine to 16 in Pyongyang under the direct care of Kim Il-sung and her life after, including the three years she spent living here in New York. Now, talking to her, and, and actually, I, we were only able to do a short interview uh, with her because she's hoping to get that book published in English at the end of this year, and she's waiting for that to come out before doing a a larger talk. So we actually talked about the, um, uh, my interview with her was focused on the 1989 uh, World Festival of Youth and Students, which those who have listened to the podcast will know has been a particular fixation of mine. Uh, Last summer, we did a a mini series, just getting people who had been there to come and tell us their stories about that. Um, And then most recently, of course, on the day before Christmas, we released a a three-part special episode uh based on two days that i spent with a young american gentleman um who went to north korea the first time he went the right way and the second and third times it all went very straight it's it's an incredible story uh he on the third time to north to north korea he deliberately put himself in a situation in which he had to be arrested has anyone heard that It's, it's an astounding story. Now, when we, uh, when Chad and I, well, first of all, he contacted Chad and they had a three hour phone conversation together. And then Chad said, Jack, oh, I think this is something we should do a podcast. And so first of all, we had to do some verification process, like we do with all uh, news stories to see, do any of the details match up with things that other people can say are correct. And when we did find enough points to convince us that yes, there's meat to this story, you know, the story has legs, then we were able to go ahead and do it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have, uh, we wouldn't have published it. You know, and there, there have been a couple of episodes where, uh, well, one memorable one where I, I interviewed somebody who talked about how he believed he was detained uh, in Pyongyang by a state security agency. And then I talked to some other people and they couldn't verify that. And in fact, in some cases, directly contradicted the story and we had to just can that story. We couldn't release it. Mm. But the storytelling, I mean, that uh, that is really what separates humans from animals is that we we tell narratives, we tell stories about things that are not here. And and that's something that we find, you know, um, entertaining and interesting. That's why Netflix exists. Well, thank you all for doing your bit
2: in bringing those stories out under these incredibly difficult circumstances. Well, uh, a couple housekeeping items before we transition. Please join us again next Friday. We're going to do Korea-Japan relations. Um, if you would like to join us for the next session at 1 p.m. Right over there, uh, starts in just a couple minutes. We're going to be talking about changes in the North Korean economy. Our president, Tom Byrne, is going to sit down with Jaime Reusch of Moody's Moody's Investor Services and Peter Ward of NK Pro. So if you're interested in the economy and some of the seismic social changes happening these days with a critical comparison to Cuba, it's going to be a fascinating discussion. Please join us in the boardroom. Um, Our students are soon going to be lectured here briefly by our uh, arts and culture director, Jay. Jay's in the back there. Hi, Jay. Um, So you guys can stay put. She'll give you uh, a brief talk about Ganga Jun and then take you back to the gallery. We ask that you please be a little quiet uh, because we're going to be doing our conversation in that boardroom. Uh, Um, And
0: everyone, please check out the NK News podcast. I have to to plug my own product. Of course. Do please check it out. Please help me to thank our panelists. And thank you for coming today. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's special joint episode with the Korea Society. Many thanks again to the Korea Society for hosting us and for recording and sharing the audio. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast as well as the Korea Society podcast, and also consider buying a subscription to nknews.org, where you will always find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. If you live in the United States, you can also consider becoming a member of the Korea Society. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Unique Career Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.